Thank you for tuning in to Season 2 of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today we're talking to Howie Wheat, model maker, effects artist on the special editions and the prequels, as well as designing and performing as the Wampa. But not just that, we talk about his work on Captain EO, Ghostbusters 2, the Ewok adventure, and his time on set with Spielberg, getting directed by Lucas, and so, so much more. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 28, Howie Weed. All right, today we are joined by Mr. Howie Weed, who uh, not only was an island model maker, digital effects artist, but also was the Wampa, Ketwall, and uh, many more contributions to the saga. Uh, Mr. Weed, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, before we jump into your enormous history um especially you know working through the special effects of so many movies that we love i would love to first talk about what inspired you to get into this line of work initially well uh my my fascination with the movie industry kind of came from uh spending a lot of time in movie theaters as a kid there was a movie theater right near my house that showed two movies at a time every other day so i could go see the stuff that basically people see on tv now like you know all the ray harryhausen films and big fantasy things i could go to the movie theater and see those every other day so i i was really hooked on the movie industry as a as a as a kid and i actually remember walking home from school one day i think i was carrying my band instrument or something kind of lugging it down the street and i thought you know what i'm going to be in the movie industry i think i'm just going to say that like right now making up my mind i don't know what i'll do mm-hmm. but something to do with the film industry so kind of flash forward uh when i was in college i was going to san francisco state university and i was in their film program for anybody who's who's going to film school you have my sympathies because it's a long road to get to the point where they put a camera in your hand at least in my at my day mm-hmm. where there, there'd be like all this equipment and they kind of kept it held it hostage until you were sort of in your senior year in the meantime you're learning a lot of theory and stuff like that i was really hungry to somehow get more connected to the film industry and as it would happen in San Francisco, there were these telephone poles with flyers on them. And it would say something like, hey, you want to work in the movie business? And you could tear off a little phone number on the bottom of the flyer and call them. And, and what it was, it was a little company that had formed in the city called Footloose Films. And they were making a horror movie called Dracula's Disciple. Mm-hmm. And the way they funded it was you would go to their meetings And they would literally pass a hat around and you'd put a little bit of money in the hat. And in exchange, they taught lessons. They had professionals who were, you know, cameramen or lighting technicians who were working in the area and they were involved in the film and they would hold classes and you could, you go to these classes. And then when actually had shoot days for Dracula's Disciple, you could be part of the camera crew or part of the lighting crew, that kind of thing. You know, it was actually somewhat more effective (laughs) than going to film school because you were actually like working on a movie. And that was super exciting to me. And um, I remember pouring blood all over a, a guy in a coffin and making and one of the areas that they they needed a lot of help was the special effects and i've always been a really kind of a handy handy kind of a guy right so i joined that crew i think i had a toolbox which really excited them they're like wow those guys got tools (laughs) and and so i uh i ended up working with those guys for a while and i and it's through that job or that experience i guess it's not really a job wasn't getting paid but i was learning a lot um, or I met the people that kind of got me into the professional special effects industry. Um, a good friend, uh, Brent Baker, uh, who's still in working in the uh, 
creature effects business. I met him, and he ended up working on a real little small little movie in Marin called Gremlins. Mm-hmm. And because I knew him and the film kind of reached this point where it needed a lot of extra help just to push it out, I ended up getting hired uh, at a place called Chris Wayless Inc., which right. was a big creature shop at the time, and uh, working directly with, with Chris on, on Gremlins. And <laughs> that's kind of my introduction to, to actually my, my twisty, windy path that actually led me to doing special effects rather than being a different kind of filmmaker rather than being behind the camera, say. With Gremlins, I know that they were working a lot. There was a lot of different models that had to be made, um, a lot of different Gremlins, really, that had to be kind of put together. What was your role on that production? There's a scene in the film where um, a lot of Gremlins are sitting in a movie theater, mm-hmm. and they're they're watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and they sing Hi-Ho. Uh, there's, you know, all the, like, 35, 40 gremlins are all singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. <laughs> and so they needed to populate an entire movie theater with these gremlin puppets. And up to that point, they'd only made a few dozen. So I got brought in, me and a, a bunch of other people, to mass produce these gremlins and make, you know, quote-unquote kind of dumb versions of them. There was no mechanics inside them or anything. Right. It was just gremlins to be in the seats in the background. And there, were, there, was, a hollow, there was a hollow inside of them, so you could, you could puppeteer them. They had people laying down in the theater with their arms up and the gremlins on their arms, you know, kind of just swaying back and forth, singing hi-ho. So that was me. I, I remember my my very first place I was working at Chris Willis was sort of an extension of the shop. They needed extra space because they were just producing like literally shopping carts full of gremlins were everywhere. And uh, it was in a storage container. That's where we worked. They had <laughs> wow. put uh, like the kind you see on a ship, you know, right. out at sea. Um, they had put a bunch of folding card tables in there and some fans and extension cords and things. And we would just go in, we'd open it up every morning and go in there and just mass manufacture these gremlins, mm-hmm. uh, making molds and casting parts. And from there, we would, we would fill a shopping cart full of arms and legs and heads and stuff. And we would roll down the middle of the street all the way over to the main shop where they were putting them together. So that was, that was kind of how I got sort of into the creature end of things. And I ended up staying there for quite a while working on, um, Enemy Mine and Romancing the Stone mm-hmm. and the Fly and yeah, a lot of fun projects. Your your early work is is just iconic. The movies that you were able to kind of put some of your work towards. I, I listed a few just kind of while I was doing some research, uh, especially after the jump to ILM. What was that process like? How did you then get involved with <laughs> with the guys at ILM? I re- I remember sometimes the bunch of us at at Chris Wayless Inc., we would all end up in a van together going to lunch or something. And mm-hmm. uh, ILM was sort of squirreled away and hidden. Like its location was sort of a secret. But if you knew the right gas station attendant, they'd tell you where to go. So, you know, we kind of knew generally where ILM was. And every once in a while in the van, you know, Chris, our boss, had worked there. And so he'd sort of point off in the general direction of ILM and he'd say, hey, guys, right over there, that's ILM. They're <laughs> shooting a whole bunch of really cool stuff today. And we'd all put our noses against the glass of the van and go, ooh, cool. <laughs> so, so we knew it was kind of close. It was kind of there. And, you know, I'm a Bay Area guy. I was born and raised in San Francisco. And so I always sort of had Lucasfilm kind of in the back of my mind, like, well, I'm here and they're here. And who knows? Maybe sometime, some, somehow it'll happen. So for me, 
the kind of kind of the way it happened was sort of a, a, a more traditional than these other kind of ways I got into business. I actually I just straight up interviewed. Um, I I called up the the head of the shop and uh, I asked if they needed anybody, and they said, "Well, why don't you come by and show us your stuff and and we can talk." Mm-hmm. So I I put together my my portfolio such as it as it was. And uh, back in the day, you know, you didn't have to do uh, video presentations and movies and stuff like that. You just had a book full of photographs, usually pretty bad photographs of the stuff that you had you had made over the years. So I brought that with me. And as luck would have it, Industrial Light Magic had just finished working on Howard the Duck. Mm -hmm. And Howard the Duck went on for a really long time and it was a really big crew and they pushed really hard. So everybody had sort of the movie had ended and everybody had gone on vacation. It was just like a gigantic shop and nobody in there. So when I came to interview, they were looking for people who had sort of experience doing creaturey, organic-y, latex-y kind of stuff. There was a project called Interspace, which is sort of like Fantastic Voyage, that they were putting a, trying to put a crew together for it, but everybody was gone. So they looked at my portfolio and I had done puppets and that kind of stuff. So they were like, great, you know, you're, you're a great fit for this uh-huh. and we need people right now. So, you know, I, it just, timing just worked out great. I had, um, I had just finished working on the fly and as happens when you work on a movie, when a movie ends, you, you kind of have nothing. you you go from like, you know, you're on triple speed and you're, you're working on a set and it's all really exciting. And then the project ends and you're unemployed and you're just sort of standing there looking in the street, looking around going, now what am I supposed to do? So that worked, the timing of that worked out great. What were the projects that you then worked on at ILM? I know one of the ones, because um, we talked to Harrison Ellenshaw about his work on Captain EO, and I know uh, you had some involvement there in terms of some of the creature effects. <laughs> very, very little, but it was exciting to be a part of it. And yeah. now in retrospect, it's like it's kind of an iconic thing at the yeah. time. Uh, you know, you really never have any idea of what you're working on. and mm-hmm. you know, Will it ever be remembered or completely forgotten? But um, yeah, I had gone down to L.A., um, after Enemy Mind to work on a on a movie called House, uh, which I think the um, the liner for that one was Ding Dong, You're Dead. And uh, it was a horror film, kind of a comedy horror film. Right. Um, and right after that, um, Rick Baker, who's a fantastic visual effects, uh, special makeup effects artist, um, he was looking to add a few people to his crew. And my old boss, Chris, uh, knew Rick real well. And, and gave me a recommendation, and I ended up getting hired at Rick's shop, and they were working on on Captain EO. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was a Michael Jackson. There were Michael Jackson busts all over the shop, and there was costume people building giant alien costumes and things. And I, I got put on um, the little fuzzball that's flying around and lands on Michael Jackson's shoulder all the time. It's like his right. little mascot. Yeah. And it's kind of this bright orange kind of squirrel, fat squirrel thing. Yeah. Uh, I remember at the time... Uh, while I was working on it, we had a visit from uh, the cinematographer and from uh, not the not not the director. No, we didn't get Francis Ford Coppola, but we got we got the director, and I was super excited because he was the same director from Apocalypse Now, and I actually brought in my Apocalypse Now poster. I'm a big fan of that film. Uh-huh. It really hit me at just the right age, and I his Victoria Storero, and I'm <laughs> I walked up to him. I said, "Excuse me, are, are you Mr. Storero?" And he said. He said, yes, because like it's a creature shop and nobody knew who he was. And I said, I just wanted to let you know, I think uh, the cinematography in Apocalypse Now is probably some of the best I've ever seen in my my life. Would you <laughs> sign my poster? And he got really excited. He was like, somebody knows who I am. <laughs> and so 
that was kind of cool. But yeah. but at the time, the 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 I, one of the ideas behind Captain EO was that all each of the creatures represents a primary color, and somehow they were going to teach the audience about primary colors and mixing colors and what happens with all of that. Mm-hmm. So that's why the creatures are like these really prime colors. And, and, um, and the, the whole idea got dropped later mm-hmm. they, they just never, and they never pushed, uh, for the audience to understand <laughs> color theory or anything like that. But, um, yeah, we were, you know, it was a small group of us. Uh, Rick's shop at that time was, um, relatively small mm-hmm. and, uh, it was a really fun project because I, I think I read somewhere where at the time it may still be a record, but there was more money spent per minute of film on that than anything else in the motion picture history. But I, I can't believe that's true today, but, right. um, at the time, you know, it was, it was kind of a big deal. And, and I think, I, I think a couple of years ago, I was able to see it again at, at Disneyland, they did like a kind of a retro little tribute mm-hmm. re- rescreening of it in the park. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, very fun. Well, another thing, kind of on that same level, before even you know your work on on the actual Star Wars movies, was uh, you did some work on the Ewok adventure with uh, John Berg and Phil Tippett. I feel like that's kind of an introduction to the Star Wars world <laughs> if, if you can have one, right? Yeah. When people ask me about Star Wars, I go, "Well, there is, you know." Ewoks Caravan of Courage, which I, which <laughs> oh, I have worked on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I, you know what? It's, it's funny when I bring that up, people immediately go like, yeah, I saw that. And, and there's a sequel to it as well, which I did not work on, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, this was sort of in the awkward star Wars years where there wasn't plans for a new movie, but there was, and it was, I guess, post star Wars holiday special. Right. So there was, there was a desire, there was a property, uh, and nobody knew what to do with it. And, uh, so this project came up and I got a call from uh, John Burke, who I'd worked with prior. And he said, yeah, we just, you know, we're putting together a, a creature costume and uh, it's real, real small. And we're, we're doing it all at my place up in Hercules. Hmm. And I got a new house and it's got a, it's got a great garage and, and we're sitting it up in there. And what do you think? And I said, yeah, sounds, sounds terrific. <laughs> so I, I would drive out to Hercules every day. And it was one of those, one of those neighborhoods that had just been built, mm-hmm. like, you know, you could see you could see three blocks down that they were still building houses. Right. And we had this like really clean shop to work in. And um, John had um, been cast as the, one of the main creatures. Uh, he was going to be in this uh, kind of dark black uh, furry creature suit with mm-hmm. kind of a gorilla face on it and pointy ears. <laughs> and co- I think it's called the Gullrax. And Phil was there and, and Phil and John and myself and a guy named Jonathan Horton, who's a great creature guy. Um, we just, the four of us kind of put all this stuff together. Um, there was this sort of, uh, it's got a name. I don't know what it, I can't remember anymore. It's kind of a, um, a boar, a gigantic boar creature mm-hmm. in it that they end up killing in the film. And we did an animatronic kind of a, a small dog scale version of that. And then there was also like kind of a dead one that was sculpted full size. And that was really huge. like as big as a Volkswagen bug. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it happened over the course of just a few months. And um, I think one of my funnest memories, though, of, of that project was um, we needed to provide some some actual footage, some shots of Ewoks celebrating that they had killed the killed the monster. So Phil came up with this idea where we would make these tiny little Ewok puppets. Uh-huh. I mean, we're talking little, like like their heads were as big as a baseball, and we 
made them so that each of the, we made three puppets and each of them were holding a spear in front of them. So both hands were clasping a miniature spear uh-huh. and they were only sculpted to about the waist down. So you could put your hand up inside and you, with one hand, you could kind of control the head looking around and the other hand, you could control the spear, which it made the Ewok look like he was controlling the spear. So we, without any permission, we drove out to Skywalker ranch um, Phil got us through the front gate and about halfway to the main house, you know, there's all these tall redwood trees everywhere. It looks, it looks, you know, just like the Ewok planet. And so we just sort of pulled over and the camera guy ran to the back of the car and pulled out the camera and set up a tripod in the middle of the road there and pointed it at the trees. And we got our puppets uh, <laughs> on our hands uh-huh. and kind of ran up the side of the hill and held the puppets up. And the cinematographer kind of framed it and said, okay, and action. And we were, puppeteering them kind of like, you know, little doing a little dance and like pumping their spears up and down while they're doing a little dance. And we shot like for maybe one minute and then he said, okay, that's it back in the car. And we all kind of ran down the hill (laughs) and, and jumped in the car and the cinematographer threw the stuff in the back of the car. And that was it. It was kind of a gorilla, a gorilla shoot as it were. (laughs) And that made it into the cut. That's in the, that's in the cut of the film. Yeah. Phil loves that kind of stuff. I mean, he just loves, you know, you know, as much as much as, you know, a, for a stop motion animator who has the, you know, so much patience to do the kind of work he does. He also loves guerrilla filmmaking and just, you know, seat of your pants type stuff. We're not even touching brunt of the work, but the Ghostbusters 2, you actually kind of part of one of the most iconic scenes of that of that movie. Do you want to kind of explain, I guess, to the, the people listening? Yeah, I was one of the one of the creature crew on um, Ghostbusters 2 working in, in the ILM uh, creature shop. And we were doing, there was a huge crew. They were doing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But towards the end of the film, we were shooting a, a gag where Dance was going to be looking at a painting of this uh, character. Mm-hmm. And the painting was going to come alive and actually possess Stance. And the actor wasn't available. He was already off shooting something else. And so they kind of looked around and they sort of looked at me and they <laughs> said, well, you're, you're kind of Dan Aykroyd-ish. And I was like, thanks, guys. And they said, no, no, this is good. This is good. And, you know, what we could do is we could do a makeup on you and you could kind of sub for for um, Dan Aykroyd. And I, and I, what do you think? And I said, um, well, OK, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd, I'd like to do that. So <laughs> that got set in motion and um, they did a life casting. The guys in the shop did a life casting of me. And I saw myself in plaster, which is always really weird. And they started sculpting these makeups. And actually, I was sort of working on the design of the character at the same time. There, there really wasn't a, a locked-in look for the creature, and I kind of did this sort of drag queen <laughs> sort of looking thing. Right. Uh, and, and they way they photographed it to show it to the director and everything, uh, they kind of bought off on it. So it was a very simplistic kind of uh, like you know demon like creature design mm-hmm. with like a lot of mascara and a lot of like red ruby lips and stuff right. that became the final design mike smithson uh who's a fantastic makeup artist uh did the final design and uh the, all, sculpted all the appliances and applied them and everything but when it came to the the actual shoot i was the makeup chair for about seven hours and uh you know when you sit in one of those canvas director's chairs it kind of cuts across the bottoms of your legs which is normally no big deal mm-hmm. but after seven hours my legs were completely you know how when your legs fall asleep in a movie theater or something like that, like dead, you know, and if 
when I would have my makeup done, we'd always have a, a production assistant standing there with a walkie-talkie announcing how much more time he had. 15 more minutes, and he'll be on stage. Five more minutes, he'll be on stage. And I'd finally get up, and people would have to help me because my legs were completely numb. And then I'd try to walk around and get some circulation going. At the same time, they were putting a, uh, a tank on my back, which is filled with slime. It's just part of the costume. <laughs> so this thing weighed about 30 pounds and they're strapping it on me and I'm trying to keep my balance going. In the meantime, they're walking me towards the soundstage so they can get me in into the light. And this whole setup inside the soundstage was uh, kind of focused in on this one platform. Like there was lights all focused and cameras all focused. And there were these, there was this black tent that I couldn't figure out what they were doing with a black tent in the, in the stage. But they led me up some steps and they put me on this platform and I'm dressed as a ghostbuster with this big tank on my back and this giant demon makeup. And a guy came up and said, okay, well, um, you need to sw swirl this uh, dark, dark liquid in your mouth. So your teeth will be all stained and the interior of your mouth will be all stained. And I said, what is it? They said, oh, it's, um, it's Kool-Aid, but we've only put a few drops of water in it. So it's really going to stain your mouth. And I said, well, okay, fine. That yeah. was the most bitter thing you could possibly swirl in your mouth. So I put that in my mouth and I swirled it around and they put some teeth and you know, false teeth in there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I had a guy, I had a doctor come up and he said, okay, we're going to put some contact lenses uh, over your eyes. And so they were full contact scleral lenses, which means it's not like a little tiny dot lens. It's, it goes over the entire surface of your eye. Mm -hmm. And so I would look up and then look down and these things were glass and they would pop them in my eyes. And oh, so wow. by the time I had those on, I could, it looked like you were holding a soup can <laughs> away about arm's length from, from your face. And that's what you could see this little dot you could kind of see through. Uh -huh. And at that point, somebody came up and said, okay, so you've memorized your lines, right? I said, lines, I haven't memorized any lines. They're like, oh yeah, you've got lines and you have to like, uh, you have to sort of match this recording we have of the, uh, the actor. Yeah. Has anyone played that for you? And I said, no. <laughs> and so <laughs> they said, well, let's play it for you once. And it was that the, all that dialogue you hear in the movie, mm -hmm. I, Vigo, the Carpathian, do hereby, blah, 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 blah. It just goes on and on. And they played it once. And they said, okay, you got it? And I said, no, I'm not an actor. I don't want to, I don't, I don't got it. Just keep playing it on a loop. Just as, as for as much time as I've got before you guys want to shoot, just don't stop playing that. And maybe I can memorize it all. So they had that playing in the background and, and finally, someone told me what the tent was. I kind of, they said, okay, so Howie, look over this way. And I said, uh-huh. And he said, you see this tent? And I said, yeah, what's the tent? And they said, well, there's a kind of a slime gun in there, and it's going to shoot slime at your face. <laughs> and I said, really? And they're like, yeah, it's kind of high volume. So, you know, if it's too much, let us know. But, uh, I mean, it's basically going to be, you know, a 50-cent piece thick column of, of really thick slime shooting at high speed right into your face. And I was like, okay, I, I, fine, I'm game. That sounds great. <laughs> let's, let's do this thing. And that's when they told me, oh, and you need to read the dialogue at times two speed because we're going to be shooting in slow motion. So do you think you can do that? And at that point, I said, absolutely. <laughs> what else you got? And so, so you know, it went from like shooting at normal speed where you just had this voice going, I think of the Carpathian 2. I think of the Carpathian And I had to kind of like, mimic it like that right. and see if I could get my lips to hit any of those marks. And in the meantime, we had uh, our visual effects supervisor, you know, multi-Oscar winner, Dennis Muren, fantastic right. uh, cinematographer, fantastic, fantastic visual effects soup 
Um, and he knew I was blind basically. And so he got a, he got a flashlight and he said, wherever you see the flashlight, that's where you're, that's where you're going to look, Howie. So if you just look around and see if you can find that flashlight beam. And I said, sounds great. So <laughs> by the time they had the cameras going and the flat, they had Dennis Muren started running back and forth to the stage with this flashlight. And I was trying to follow him uh-huh. and they, they hit the sound and I, and then they shot slime in my face at high speed. It was just, I, you know, I don't even know what I was thinking while I, this was shooting. I, you know, when there's a column of slime hitting in your face and you, you're, you're here <laughs> trying to find this dot of light and yeah. all this stuff. I was, they go, that's, you know, they turn off the slime and they turn off the camera and they go, that was great. Just, just do that again. And I'm like, I would just spit out this gigantic glob full of, slime <laughs> and i'd say okay <laughs> keep, keep let's keep going whatever you guys need yeah and uh we probably shot it three or four times and they got it and uh so that was kind of my experience on that the funny thing was when you see the film it's kind of a a, a floating head at certain point right. and it kind of flies off into the distance and explodes with the same death star explosion they used in star wars <laughs> so it's just a shower of shower of sparks. I think that was my favorite part was like seeing that I, my head exploded like the death star. (laughs) And that was really, that was really cool. (laughs) So I guess now moving to star Wars and moving to the special editions, especially what was that initial process? Like you were first just helping design and sculpt the masks for first, the new cantina aliens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, There was, it was like, there was kind of a lull in the shop uh, in the island creature shop at that time. We're lot of people around and uh there were there were a bunch of people at skywalker ranch um some of the model shop people uh working on the third floor and they were starting to work on the prequels Mm -hmm. and they'd been up there for quite a while and george had this idea about doing a star wars restoration like taking the original films and doing a master restoration which by the way has never still there's still another version of this that has still never been released every single every single glitch or complaint that you've ever read about about any of the original three star wars films was addressed Mm -hmm. so it was called tar t-a-r and and it lasted about a year and they they went and they rescanned and fixed every single thing you've ever seen you know anyone ever mentioned in a star wars movie Mm -hmm. you know matte lines and lightsaber flashes and um little glitches and things like that they recomposited all the wipes everything and then and I and I I'm not sure the resolution of it, but it was is it was they're trying to future proof it so that you had something that was like crystal clear and perfect. And while during that process, George kind of got it in his head like, well, if we're making like this new master version, there's all these points in the ori- making of the original films where you know I had to kind of make a big compromise at the time. But it's not really what I wanted. I don't think it told the story the way I want to tell a story. And for the cantina sequence, you know, they really didn't have the resources right. that they wanted to pull that off the way they wanted to pull it off. There's all, I, I, you know, I've never tried to get to the bottom of why they had so many kind of static masks and things like that. But I know, I know that they hired people. There was, there was a lot, there was a huge demand and they, and they, they pulled off, what they pulled off was amazing. I mean, everybody oh, yeah. loves the original cantina sequence and I do too. So, but there was a few, a few moments where, George said, you know, uh, the werewolf with the glowing eyes, the red glowing eyes that right. kind of has his cup in front of his face and he lowers the cup and you get that kind of kind of sound. <laughs> uh, that was not one of George's favorites. He wanted to replace it and he had, 
he had this fantastic artist named Terrell Whitlatch, um, who was working up at Skywalker on new creatures for the prequel films, um, whip up this thing. Um, this creature kind of had an elephant trunk mm-hmm. and these kind of, you know, uh, big orb like eyes. And, um, so they, what they wanted to do was, was basically do a real quick, um, mock-up of the cantina wall, put this creature in front of it and just do an insert shot real quick and replace that werewolf. And, you know, I, the job just fell in my lap and they said, Hey, you know, you've got just a few days to sculpt this thing uh, and a few more days to mold it and paint it. And then we're going to go direct to the stage and we're going to shoot this thing. And it's, it has to be fast, fast, fast. And I was like, I'd love to do it. You know, a chance to work on the original star Wars cantina scene and contribute in some way. That's like, <laughs> I don't know, wish, wish fulfillment times a million, you know, and it, it worked out really well. We had, you know, in the creature shop, we had a lot of busts sitting around plaster busts and truck went over and put it on a sculpting stand. And, um, I learned a lot at Chris Wayless Inc. about using water-based clay, basically like pottery clay that you would like put on a pottery wheel and spin that kind of clay, which you can sculpt really, really fast. And it goes through all these stages where it becomes very leather-like and you can carve lots of detail into it and keep uh, adding and adding to it. Mm-hmm. And so that sculpture came together in about two days wow. and then it was, uh, uh, was approved. They they had uh, some producers come by and say, it looks great, and molded it and cast the puppet and painted it up in the, in the, it was kind of fun that way. It was a little bit of everything. It wasn't, I just didn't get to work on one little part. I got to kind of take it all the way to, you know, painting it and rigging it up so it could be puppeteered right. and, uh, and taking it over to the stage. And it took three of us to, to puppeteer it. But what was kind of fun is like when I walked on stage, while I had been working on this puppet and, and fussing over it on stage, they had been building this wall that was the same, like they had picked a frame from the original Star Wars and they had mocked up this wall that had the same kind of plaster. And there's this little, you know, if you look at the cantina in Star Wars, there's this, there's these little windows that are about as big as a shoebox, mm-hmm. and they're very deep inside the wall. And nothing else looks like that. It's very distinctive. You know, if you're somebody who's watched Star Wars as many times as I, I assume you and I have, <laughs> you see that, and you like it's like a light goes on. Like that is from Star Wars. Right. You know, you really identify with it. So when I walked the creature over, I saw this this section of a wall that we were going to be setting up in front. I just looked at that window and I went, "Holy crap! <laughs> this is all come, this is going to be in Star Wars. Yeah, this is crazy." So. Yeah, we set the thing up. We did a, a one-day shoot on it, and Don Knoll was the cinematographer. He's uh, one of the, the great visual effects supervisors there oh, yeah. and uh, a total Star Wars fan as well. So we had a lot of fun working out the camera angles and exactly what kind of uh, puppeteering to do. And, you know, we were referencing a lot of creatures and things that we both have in common. And it was kind of – it was a fun shoot. But we had, um, I don't know, maybe 10 takes. Uh-huh. on it and removing the trunk around and that kind of thing. But uh, that kind of led to there's, there's, there's the cat wall, right. which is the original creature that was sculpted. But then there's this other version of it called the Melis. And the Melis is actually the cat wall, but turned around. <laughs> so John Knoll was walking around, our supervisor was walking around the puppet and he said, you know what? The back of the creature, the back of his head kind of looks like another creature. What if we just, take a big scarf and wrap it around the face of the original creature and then turn it around. 
And I said, what? And he said, yeah, no, no, this is, this is going to work. This is going to be great. And, you know, all of us creature guys kind of looked at each other like, okay, let's, let's turn it around. Let's see if we can make this happen. Because we it all still had to happen in the same shoot day. And so kind of out of nowhere, um, the costuming showed up. And um, my good creature buddies, uh, Mark Siegel, ran back to the model shop and found a bunch of model kits and glued a bunch of model kits together and got some spray paint and hair dryer, painted this thing that looks kind of like a, like a hookah. Uh-huh. And so we had a, we had something for this creature to be smoking and we had a turban on it and yeah, you know, it all kind of happened like really, really fast. And before you know it, we were shooting that version of him smoking like, uh, and then we had someone underneath the stage actually smoking a real cigarette, blowing <laughs> cigarette smoke through, there was no time to like, you know, be healthy. We had to get the shot and, uh, yeah, blowing cigarette smoke through this hookah thing. And, uh, yeah, we got it. All in the same day, two for one. That's so great. That's very Star Wars, right? Just using what you have and, and making the most of it. I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, it, 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 what's kind of it, it, maybe it's a little ironic that the original, you know, it, there was a lot of sacrifices and compromises to get that big cantina sequence. In the end, here we are, this big major major studio, industrial <laughs> light magic, you know, and it's prime. And we're just running around throwing stuff together as fast as we can too for the same sequence. So yeah. kind of kind of in the same spirit. I love it. With Empire, you not only sculpted and helped redesign the the Wampa costume, but also were able to to be inside of it, kind of going back to your days like on the Ghostbusters two set. What was it like both designing and redesigning kind of that iconic look? And then what was it like kind of stepping in, in those furry shoes? That project, again, that, that was kind of coming down to us from Skywalker Ranch folks. Um, George, you know, we got the, we got this stuff shot for uh, the canteen sequence, the, the Milos and Ketwell. And George just kind of kept the ball rolling, decided that there was some shot from Empire that he was never really able to get. I don't know if you've seen some behind-the-scenes footage on the full-size Wampa that they shot out yeah, in the snow. with Des Webb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he did a fantastic job. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, he deserves an Oscar. They <laughs> asked him to wear stilts in a real snowbank, right. you know, and try to walk around. And they had this whole contraption to get him up into the suit, and then they would try to see what he could do. Right. And it, it was it was heroic, but <laughs> they just weren't able to get with the uh, costume that they had. They just weren't able to get very much. And so George basically, I he he had cut around it, and but when it came to the scenes inside the cave, he wanted to have this point. There was a big meeting and, and he, he started talking about it. Um, and he said there was this point where he just wanted the audience to be startled. There was, you know, all this growling and huffing and puffing that Luke wakes up to. And then they never cut to anything. Mm-hmm. They never, you never see anything. And so George actually wanted to cut to something and have the audience go, Oh shit, what the hell is that? Uh Oh, he's in real trouble. And like, there's this giant thing in there. And, and he was never able to get those shots. Right. So uh, what we proposed is that instead of putting an actor on stilts, why don't we build the cave smaller to make yeah. the creature look big? And I did a, a mock-up. I took one of those uh, little wooden uh, posable sketch um, aids of a little person. And I kind of, uh, you know, you kind of get it from an art supply store. Mm-hmm. And I, I posed it in kind of a crouch position and glued all the joints with a ton of super glue and sculpted like kind of half of the Wampa over just once on the left side. And 
brought that to the meeting. And so I sort of, you know, kind of see, I could kind of show like, well, here's the wampa <laughs> on the one side and you rotate it around. I was like, this is how a person would fit in, into it. Right. And I was just hoping that they would go, Oh, that could work, you know? And at the time we were like, right. Kind of in the midst of like Jumanji had finally released. And so fur was a possibility and no big main creature would covered in fur like that had ever been done. So the CG department was chomping at the, at, you know, at the bit to, get the green light and do the wampa as a CG creature. And they could really, you know, kind of go in places they hadn't been yet. And so, you know, I kind of said, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to be uh, something that, uh, you know, people are going to like win engineering awards for, but I think it'll be pretty effective. And it's, it's definitely old Hollywood. Oh, I yeah. think we could, we could do a good job. And George just kind of looked at him and went, he went, yeah, Let's just do it like this. Let's do it as a costume. And I was like, oh, you know, okay. Yeah, sounds, I think that, that makes sense. But inside I was going, yes, <laughs> yes, awesome. Because now we get to build this whole thing, which is great. So yeah, the uh, the creature shop kind of then suddenly became a, a suit making factory. Mm-hmm. We had um, Annie Polland working with us, who's since passed, unfortunately. At the time, she was the head of the costuming department at Industrial Light and Magic. She worked on a ton of stuff. She worked on Willow. She'd made like original Stormtrooper costumes, things wow. like that. So she was indispensable. And um, we, we kind of kind of took a life casting of, of me. <laughs> and we, <laughs> there, was, there was this point where who, knows, who, who knew who was going to be in the suit, actually. Right. And uh, we had done a bunch of like, sculpting and whatnot, the face and kind of sizing things up. And actually, I was at a point where I needed to know who, who, are, who was going to be in the suit. And in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe it could be me. Maybe I can <laughs> figure this out. Yeah. And so... I went to, to Dennis Mirren's office and uh, I was like, hey, Dennis, you know, knock, knock. Hey, how's it going? Um, look, we're kind of at this point where we're going to need to figure out who's going to be in the suit. And I guess we could go to a casting agent in L.A. and then we could go through the process of figuring out who's, who would be right for it. And but this is also somebody that would have to be come up for multiple suit fittings and they'd have to come up and get a hotel room and it'd be a big deal. Or I could do it. And so <laughs> Dennis saw this coming and he kind of just looked me up and down and said, okay, you can do it. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Awesome. So that kind of actually, that kind of freed us up because now we no longer are waiting for an actor and who knows, right. you know, how they're going to love being, you know, stuffed into a rubber suit. So if it was just me, they could do anything they wanted to me and I'd be happy for it. So that worked out great. Um, and I knew, I knew going forward that, you know, doing creature suit type work is usually pretty tough. Like, uh, you're kind of sweating your butt off in there and it can get really hot over hundred degrees in those suits. And then for that reason, I'd always been like, I'm happy being the guy sculpting. I'm fine. I don't need to be in the monster suit. But I thought, well, if there's ever a time to be in the monster suit, this is it. Do it. Just do it. So, so yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting. Um, we, the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to go up to the archives, the Star Wars archives at Skywalker Ranch. And there was this puppet that Phil Tippett had made um, for the original Empire. It's the one that you see pop up, like there's a sky in the background. It kind of pops up and swipes at the Tauntaun. And um, it's a really cool one. I really like that one a lot. And so um, I called the archives guys and I said, hey, you know, we're working on this 
new Wampusine, and so I'd like to come up. And is there any chance you could send that thing down to ILM and we could have it here in the shop? So you know, kind of go go by that. And and they said you're not going to believe this. And we we're like, what? And they said it's leaving tomorrow for an ex- exhibition in Japan. <laughs> I said it's been sitting in the archives for like 20 years. Are you telling me? The day, you know, the actually the, we finally need it for something, and the day I call, it's leaving tomorrow. Yeah. So like that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> so, so a uh, couple of us jumped in the car, drove up there. They let us in. We took as many photographs as we can, and then they basically screwed it into a crate, and it was gone. We had our photographs, and we start. We kind of we kind of used Phil's design. We kind of looked at the uh, other shots where you can kind of vaguely see something. Right. Um, in the film. And mostly the creature has its hands in front of its face uh, as it's charging towards the camera. So you really, you know, kind of a lot of room for us to, to, to kind of, you know, make our version work. Um, and we, we sculpted this thing. I, I, I um, <laughs> without fur, the wampa is a very strange looking creature. <laughs> it, it looks kind of like, have you ever seen those videos of like, this is a bear that's lost all its hair. And you're like, it's a, it's an alien. What the hell is that? Yeah. It's kind of the same thing for the wampa with no white hair on it. It's a, it's sort of like a bear monkey or something like that. And, uh, but we sculpted, uh, bits and pieces of the face and did some very simple control, uh, cable controls on it. So his brows could move and his lips could move. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we actually, uh, rigged it up kind of classic mask style. So if you open the jaw far enough, the, the upper lips kind of go up like it's snarling. And the lower jaw was just held together with uh, these kind of rubber band type things. So it would clamp onto my jaw real tight. And the head was built over a construction worker's helmets. And construction worker helmets have a ratchet in the back, like a knob. And you can put the helmet on and then ratchet it down. So you've got this ring that's tightening around your forehead as you ratchet it. Mm-hmm. And so we used that. We'd put this thing, this, this mask on me and someone would ratchet the thing down. So there was just no way this mask was ever going to like, you know, slip around. Um, it was a little tight. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody would click it a couple of extra times too many, uh, it was really solid on my head. And uh, we slowly built up the creature suit with using foam construction. So we had kind of like a muscle suit in kind of like a uh, you know, gorillas in the mist looking kind of way. Mm-hmm. And um, we ultimately were able to get the exact same fur that the original Wampa oh, um. uh, had been made from. Yeah. Cause the company that made it still made the same fur. <laughs> and uh, so we had these giant sheets of that. And um, one of the fun things that I, that I had a, had a good time with was um, once the fur was applied over the bodysuit, we were looking for ways to take the curse off of it looking like a big fluffy stuffed animal, you know, cause the fur is just, you know, perfect when you get it. And we were like, you know, this thing needs to look like it's been out in the snow. It needs to look like it's eaten a bunch of other animals. It needs to be matted. It needs to be kind of nasty. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of hair gel and things like that and like really kind of clumped the hair with the hair gel. And we also put a lot of, we looked at a lot of images of polar bears and how after they eat a seal, there'd be this like yellow stain that goes down the front of the polar bear with kind of red coming off its mouth. So we added that in there too. We thought, oh, that's cool. We were a little timid. We were like, what if George doesn't like it? And we can't go back. So we were like, yeah, but it looks cool. So we're definitely going to, we're going to put it in there. Yeah. And then one of the fun things was I got a, a, a double boiler and I put blocks of white paraffin, you know, wax into the double boiler and, and melted it all down. And then I would take a brush 
and like a big, huge paintbrush and scoop up the paraffin and then just jam it up into the white fur and let it harden. And as soon as it hardened, I could take this fur and crush it with my hand, like, you know, just grip it and crush it. And it would look like ice crystals that had gotten jammed up in the fur mm-hmm. or hanging like dangling in the fur. So if we had, we had a little bit of everything going on. We had hair gel, we had wax crushed up into it. We had stain going down the front of it, but we still didn't go too far. <laughs> you know, we wanted you know, anything to give it texture and like a, give it a little bit of history. And as it turns out, you know, we we're kind of wondering what George was going to see because, you know, we weren't even sure if he would be there for the shoot. Right. Dave Carson was the uh, director for that uh, insert uh, sequence. We got to the point where we were on stage. A miniature cave had been built. It was fantastic. It was so cool to kind of get it all together. I was on stage, you know, wearing the big monster suit, the creature suit, and uh, have the head off as much as possible. But it didn't look like George was going to going to be there, and we had a schedule. So we got ready to shoot. I put the head on, and we kind of, it kind of like would, there was snaps, and it would kind of all snap together mm-hmm. so that there was a blend between the head and the body. We had the guys on their animatronics, you know, make, to make the cable-controlled animatronics. The cables would go down my body and out one of my legs and then down into the snow. You know, I could take like three steps before I ran out of cable. But then we had the puppeteers hiding, you know, behind a stalagmite and we got, we got ready to go and we heard the, you know, roll camera and here we go. And I was like trying to figure out what I was going to, you know, how I was going to perform this thing. And then nothing happened. Like there was never an action. And somebody finally tapped on my shoulder and said, hey, you can relax. George is here. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and they had turned off the cameras and George was, you know, being introduced to everything that was going on. Right. And what, what, I thought, what I thought was pretty cool is that uh, he didn't just stand by and kind of, you know, critique what was going on. The, the cinematographer got off the uh, camera dolly and George got onto the camera dolly and sat down and looked through the camera and he was the cinematographer oh, wow. for, the, for the shots. Wow. So he was calling, you know, he was calling action. He was one looking through the camera as the dolly guy was moving the camera around. And <laughs> I remember he, he kind of said, uh, okay, let's just get, let's just run through this once. And uh, they, I put the head, you know, I had the head on, I'm ready to go. And I, I had in my mind that, you know, this creature was kind of this powerful kind of monkey kind of creature or something. Uh-huh. And I was going to move around kind of like these old Ray Harryhausen movies would show these gigantic creatures kind of moving with these like comic book proportions. And so I was thinking about, you know, comic book poses and, you know, those kinds of things. So when he called action, I was just like way over the top and just moving around, you know, my, my, my fingers curled and big, you know, big round arms and kind of, you know, hunched over and looking around. And I heard this, you know, I heard George scream cut and, I heard his I heard his feet kind of crunching, <laughs> coming towards me, and so I sort of turned, and through the little eyes on the mask, I could see George walk up to me, and he got really close. He got within like six inches of my face, and he said, "Can you hear me?" <laughs> and I, I I was like, "Of course I can hear you," but I didn't didn't want to embarrass him, so I just kind of shook my head like, "Yes, I, I you know, Wampa hears you," and uh, he said, "Okay, well, I don't know what the hell that was supposed to be." But here's the deal. You're a bear. You're like a big, dumb bear. And you can only think of one thing at a time. So if you're eating, you're just thinking, I'm eating. And then if you hear something, you forget that you're eating, and you think, oh, what was that? And then you forget what you were listening for, and you go back, and you go, oh, my food. And then you go back to your food. But it's just one thing at a time, and it's real slow and really dumb. <laughs> and I said, 
And I said, you got it? And I said, I kind of shook my head like, you know, yes, <laughs> I've, got, I've got it. And so he got back on the camera and we, we ran it again. And so from that point on, I was just like almost performing like I was underwater. I was really just, you know, in, to, <laughs> from my point of view, everything was going incredibly slow. I hear, you know, okay, look to camera. And I'd slowly look to camera. He goes, slower. And I'd say, okay. And I'd go back to my original, and I'd slowly look to the camera, and he'd go, dumber. And I'd <laughs> look at my, my food, and then I'd, I'd look a little bit and slowly look over to the camera, and he'd go, slower, even more slower and more dumber. And so <laughs> I would do it again and kind of like, you know, it seemed to me like I was like in some kind of weird time warp. Like I was just really hardly moving at all. And we just, we never turned the camera off. We just kept shooting the same thing over and over and over until I heard cut. <laughs> and then I heard the producer, Rick McCallum, who was standing off the side saying, that's great. We got it. And George said, we got it. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, okay, fantastic. And um, there was a, there was a air hose that would go up into my suit and they reconnected this air hose and, the suit would kind of inflate with cold air. Mm. And it was for me, it was like, Oh my God, that's just so feels so fantastic. I'm sweating up the storm in there. But I thought, Hey, this is my chance to kind of interact with George Lucas. I could kind of say great shoot, great, you know, working with you or something. Uh -huh. So I turned to the other guys in the crew. I said, get the head off, get the head off. And so they unsnapped it as fast as they could, which was pretty fast and unratcheted my head and pulled the head off. And I looked around on the stage just in time to see the stage door close. Oh, Clink. Yeah. That was it. He was gone. So the moment was over. <laughs> that was that. Yeah. But anyway, I was, I was, it was super exciting. I had a really fun time doing it. I think, you know, everybody did a really great job. I remember we had a bunch of skeptical uh, grips and lighting guys who yeah. thought this thing is just never, this thing is just never going to fly. After the screening that they did later when the film was all cut together, I had one of the, one of the guys walked over name is Dickie Dova and he's he's not known for handing out compliments too often <laughs> and he said hey Howie and I said yeah Dickie he said it didn't look too bad it worked <laughs> I said wow that's pretty high praise from you Dick and he's uh -huh. like yeah yeah whatever <laughs> to me that was like that was the highest praise I could possibly one of the stage guys actually said it was okay so I felt pretty good about yeah. that in between the special editions and then the work that you did on the prequels you made the jump from physical model making to then doing that digitally. Uh, what was that process like for you? And how did you kind of make that decision to, to make the jump to computer work? Well, you know, after Jurassic Park, uh, the first one came out, there was this kind of tremor in the force where in, a, in the model shop, which had always kind of been the, uh, you know, the king of, you know, the shot, we started to realize that the hero of shops could could very likely suddenly become digital. So right after Jurassic Park, there was kind of a, almost like a rebirth of fantasy films. A lot of movies got made that probably never would have got made if digital hadn't come along. It's sort of like what we had predicted was sort of slowly bit by bit started to happen where um, there was just a lot of work, but the focus of the shots, the cool, basically the cool work, right. if there was a helicopter in the shot, you know, the helicopter, or if there was a creature in the shop, the creature was going to digital. And we were supporting that in the model shop. So we were providing environments or close-up pieces of props or landscapes or things like that. But all the fun stuff was actually going over to the digital side. The digital department was growing so fast. I mean, literally, it went from just, you know, a handful of guys to 
half of the company in just a year. So it was, you think it's hard to remember when there wasn't a whole bunch of digital visual effects studios with hundreds of people on staff at each one. And this was, they were just trying to find anybody who like, you know, had gone to computer school and had some kind of degree so they could grow the department. And we were watching all this happen from the, from the model shop. There was, I remember during Jurassic Park, when they were making Jurassic Park, it hadn't come out yet. And they were, they were still mucking about with the digital stuff. And I, I had, someone had said, it's really looking great. And, you know, up to that point, there was the abyss maybe, and the pseudopod from the abyss, the water snake. And there was uh, T2, which had the Chrome guy, the Chrome police officer right. effect. And that was kind of it for, you know, 3D computer graphics kind of of, the, of that scale. Them saying that they had good-looking dinosaurs, <laughs> I was like, that's a huge leap. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had sort of imagined, yeah, if they use digital and dinosaurs, it'll be like a tree line and you see like a brontosaurus kind of peek up over a tree or something and off in the distance in a silhouette or something. Like, that'll be that. So, but I always heard every day them over these loudspeakers we had at, at ILM um, Jurassic Park dailies. It'd always be Jurassic Park dailies, five minutes in sea theater. And being a model shop guy, I had no reason to go over there. But I thought, you know, shoot, I'm just going to go over there. I'm going to, I just going to sneak in the back of the theater. I want to see what all the hubbub's about. And so one day they announced it, and I, I just took off my little white lab coat and ran across the parking lot and went up the back stairs and went in the back of the. Th- I waited a couple minutes so that the the, the theater would be dark and they'd be showing some footage. And I kind of walked in and it was on screen. There was a Gallimimus uh, run cycle happening. So they were showing it from the top and then from the side. And and I, I just kind of froze. And I was staring at this thing. And the tail was moving in synchronous with the body. And it had motion blur. And the rib cage was pushing on the inside of the skin during its, you know, during its gait, during its run. And I just was, I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And they were, you know, anything I could think of that maybe it could be better, they were already calling out in the dailies and people were making notes about improving it. And so <clears throat> ultimately I just, I just uh, sort of staggered out of the theater and walked back over to the model shop, put my apron back on and people came over and they said, Oh, you, so you went over there, huh? What does it look like? And I said, guys, I kind of don't know how to describe this. It's like National Geographic went in a time machine and went back and shot real dinosaurs. <laughs> and that's what it looks like. Yeah. And they're like, and everybody kind of went, yeah, sure, right. And I'm like, no, go over there and, and look. And they're like, nah, I don't need to go look. I know it's not going to be like that. And yeah, people just could not make the leap until you saw it. You just couldn't, you couldn't imagine. So that leap and just the, you know, the trending of how filmmaking was starting to go was my inspiration to see if I could figure out some way of transitioning to digital work. And mm-hmm. the way it worked for me, there was no, you know, no, there were no outstretched arms, like come and become part of our department. Sure. It was more of a backdoor thing where I, I was self-training on old machines that they had kind of in the back room. And there were these uh, videotapes from software companies that you could watch. So you could, you know, make a sphere and manipulate the sphere and things like that. And I was bugging one of the, the heads of the computer graphics department just showing them my progress and saying, just let you know, I'm serious. I'd really like to be in the department at some point right. and I'm going to keep coming and learning. I think to shut me up, they just said, well, what if we brought a trainer in and, and you took a cut and pay and you just sort of started you off as a newbie. And I said, that sounds great. I'll take it. That's kind of how I, that's kind of how I did it. I, 
I just, you know, perseverance and, and just going in after hours and, and making connect, making as many connections in that department as I could. Yeah. And, and ultimately it, it kind of worked out as it's also being at the very early stages of computer graphics. I mean, it, it wasn't like they were pumping graduates out of computer graphics school at that point. There was just a, you know, they just wanted, basically they were just happy they had artists interested in doing it. My first actual project in computer graphics was on Jurassic Park three. And it, I thought I was going to make a dinosaur or something. And actually I ended up working on the kind of mobile uh, lab. It's like this two section sort of green bus looking thing ends up going over a cliff. And, and so that was my, I, I remember they showed me, here's what you're going to make. And I went, I'm not making a dinosaur. I don't know how to make this. <laughs> and I just sort of, I just sort of had to uh, figure it out on the, on the go, on the fly there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just, I stuck with that. And I did that for 18 years in the computer graphics department. That's so great. What, when you then moved to the prequels and working on that, what were the, the models that you were working on, at least for, let's say, Phantom Menace? Right, yeah, Phantom Menace, I, I, you know, there's the there's pod race sequence, and that kept a lot of us busy for quite a while. And I remember I was still in the model shop when the pod race sequence artwork came from uh, Doug Chang's art department up at Skywalker. And this folder came to, and we they cleared off a work table and kind of spread out all the artwork out. And it was all those fantastic shots you've seen reprinted a hundred times in different magazines of, you know, like uh, Anakin's yellow pod kind of, you know, stretched out coming, coming towards you and, and it just, you know, Sebulba's pod. And, and, and I remember looking at all that stuff and going, so wait a minute, these are like the engines off a jet with cables coming off of them. And you're in this little tiny thing that's being, that's it. That that's that that looks like really dangerous. That was really cool. I got really excited about it. To this day, I think it's it's one of the one of the most I don't know most imaginative components of any of the Star Wars movies. You know, it's it's pretty dynamic, pretty pretty cool. It's the mix of tech and action and everything. I I had just finished working on Men in Black, and I got the call that our trainer had showed up, and so I had about two weeks of training. I left the model shop and two weeks of training. And then they stuck me on uh, Jurassic World and then just for a little while, right on to Star Wars. And so it was the pod race sequence that, that I got put on. And I was, I was working on um, Ben Quadinaris's pod. Uh-huh. He's the guy that like his engines die. So it's a little potato man. <laughs> and Allison Markell made uh, Ben Quadinaris and I made the pod that he's in that kind of malfunctions and messes up. Yeah. And I, um, I also did Gascano's race pod and a couple of others. Masonic, I think, was another one. Uh-huh. And uh, there was, you know, one of the coolest things about those early prequel films from like where I was sitting as a modeler in the computer graphics department is that there was just so much cool stuff to build. And it wasn't like an Iron Man film where like, you know, when you finish Iron Man, there's, there's, well, there's a few other things that are kind of interesting, but now Iron Man's built and there's nothing else. In Star Wars movies, Everybody got to work on a lot of really cool stuff. Right. It was just like an endless list of stuff to be made. I think that's one of the things that I, I actually miss most about the prequel films is just they're so episodic. And I remember coming by and, and talking about how people have forgotten how to make big movies. Like no one works on something the size of Cleopatra or Ben-Hur anymore. And they get used to the size of a set on a soundstage or, you know, mostly for film, for, t- for an aspect ratio of uh, television. And so 
he kept opening it up and saying bigger, you know, no, this is and, and showing these other films and saying, this is this, the scope of what we're trying to do here is it hasn't been seen in, in like 40 years. So it was really, an, it was really a big adjustment to kind of like take that, like almost like cinema scope kind of feel and bring it back into the, into filmmaking. And so in the computer graphics department, I, you know, I got to work on like mechanical stuff. I got to work on some creature stuff. Um, and you know the uh, the kind of glowing snake creature that tries to eat the submarine has like these kind of glowing spines. That was something I got to work on. And there's ah, it was it was it was a great experience. It was just a lot a lot of stuff to work on. I know in between Phantom Menace and then your work on Revenge of the Sith, you made a decision to work on Spielberg movies on AI and on Minority Report. How was that like? And how was working for Spielberg's vision? potentially different than working for Lucas's vision. It was a it was a tough decision. I the the reason I decided to go ahead and not be part of the next Star Wars crew is because the you know I just done, you know, some stuff for the special edition work and and I had just worked for over a year on Phantom Menace, which was, you know, such a such a great experience. And but my thought process was, well, you know what? In this same amount of time of working on one Star Wars movie, I'd watch other crews ramp up, get the movie done, and move on to another project, and ramp up and get that movie done, and work on another project. So I was like, you know, I'm, uh, one Star Wars movie equal, almost equals three working on three other projects. And then I found out that there was this um, there was this project called AI, which was artificial intelligence, which was originally a Stanley Kubrick project that Steven Spielberg was taking over. And I'm like, Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, <laughs> as much as I want to work on another Star Wars movie, how am I going to, how am I going to pass on that? Right. So, um, yeah, I kind of like kind of talked to my manager and said, Hey, you know, if there's an opportunity to work on the AI, you know, over the Star Wars, you know, I, I, I'd be interested in that. And they went really, okay. Cause everybody wants to work on Star Wars. I'm <laughs> like, well, I'm your guy then. Yeah. So, you know, put me on those, put me on that team. And it was, it was really great just because of the pedigree of it having been a Kubrick film. And Spielberg was really trying to honor the groundwork that Kubrick had laid for it. And the two of them had, had collaborated on that show for, for a while. So it wasn't like Spielberg was just sort of picking up where his friend had left off and had never talked about it. I mean, it was, it was all kind of something like, like a, like a, a mantle being kind of handed off. You know what I mean? Right. That was, you know, and, that, and I, I was in the digital department, so I got to work on one of the main vehicles, the, the amphibicopter and some of the other, the mechas that were kind of, kind of semi-robotic characters that were being hunted down. I think the process, the process was very much like, a, like everything, everything you read about Steven Spielberg, just that he, he's very methodical He's really thought everything out. And, you know, at ILM, a few of us, we used to call him, instead of Spielberg, we called him Revealberg <laughs> because everything was a reveal. You know, if you were going to show something, uh, some lights coming towards you, you weren't just going to show lights coming towards you. You were going to have a hill and you'd start to see the edges of the grass glow and then the beams of light would come up and then the camera would rise up above the hill and reveal what was behind it. So that's kind of, that's kind of his earmark thing. He had the whole thing storyboarded out. There's actually a, a, it's part of a Stanley Kubrick, all that artwork for AI is part of a Stanley Kubrick um, exhibit that's yeah. going around. 
Um, you can kind of see some of the some of the work there if you go to the exhibit. But uh, yeah, we had storyboarded the whole thing out, and it was all you know, um, kind of worked out with the cinematographer how they were going to shoot it. You know, very complete. And he was he was around for um, some of the work that I did. I got to go down to L.A. at one point and shoot the and ph- photograph the amphibicopter. Wow! And it was a shoot day with Haley Joel Osment and Jude Law, where they were escaping from uh, Rouge City. And so they had one of the amphibicopters on a gimbal, so that it could it's like hydraulic gimbal, so that it could move around like on on five axes, you know, give the appearance that it was flying. And they had other ones that were sitting off to the side that were on stages. While they were shooting the the film over on the stages, I could go and uh, shoot the ones that were sitting off to the side, but I wasn't allowed to turn on any lights or anything. So basically I had to wait until everyone to go to lunch and beg someone to turn on the stage lights <laughs> so that I could photograph this thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was fascinating watching Spielberg shoot those sequences because uh, he had this kind of Bible of shots in front of it. It was this, one of those... You know those those binders, those three ring binders that are like five inches wide, hold you know two reams of paper. It had that kind of a a book, and he was flipping back and forth between pages in his video city with like two dozen monitors, and behind him was this army of people waiting for him to say whatever he wanted, and they would leap into action. So right. he'd say, "Let's." Uh, I mean, it's not like he was difficult to work with or a tyrant, but I mean, he's very very specific, and so he would. Say like, I think I really want some shadows to go over the front of the amphibicopter right at the end before it flies away. And a team of guys like lightning would shoot (laughs) and grab flags and create that for him in a matter of minutes, like really fast. And if he ever left his little Bible area with all the monitors and to walk over and just get some M&Ms or something from craft service, there would be a line of very organized line of people waiting to get (laughs) access to him. Right. So I remember we had the crops guy who had kind of this wand. He had three wands. One of the characters needed a wand with a glowing tip. And he demoed the wands for Spielberg as he was walking to the M&Ms. He said, we have this one and we have this one. And he kind of flick, he would flick them out and they would light up. We have this one. And Spielberg would take an M&M and look at him and go, um, uh, this one, this is the one. <laughs> He'd go, Thank you very much. And that guy would disappear. And the next person would go, okay, so we have, this costume choice, this costume choice, you know, and it was like yeah. every second was so was sort of accounted for. And he was just like a fish in water. He, you know, I, it occurred to me like, wow, how can someone be, you know, just able to focus all the time in such intensity and never take a break? You know, and, and I've learned over the years that directors are just really smart and they have that kind of endurance. They can, they can make it for months with no break. Well, bouncing Back to Lucas, after your work on AI and Minority Report, um, you were then able to work a little bit more on Revenge of the Sith. What were some of the models or characters that you were able to kind of uh, make your mark with? <laughs> yeah, that one was the that was uh, that was fun. It was um, I was on uh, uh, the team that worked on Kyoshuk, the the Wookiee planet, yep. and there's these kind of uh, flying machines that the Wookiees have. And so I was on the team that helped build those. There was two different ones. It was kind of a short one and a long one. And believe it or not, they were kind of all based off of musical instruments. Mine was based off of uh, a saxophone. Uh-huh. So if you kind of look at what's kind of in the middle of these kind of kayak-looking contraptions with big dragonfly wings, it's all of these kind of rounded, fluty 
mechanisms in right. there. So yeah, I worked on that, and you know, a lot of a lot of in the prequels, a lot of the the idea. I'm not sure how much George in in all the making of materials has ever talked about this stuff, but in in the prequels, it was a, a time of artisans. So you know, Star Wars happens later, and it's it's a ragtag, and it's all kind of scrap metal, and it's whatever you can find that still works. But in the prequels, you had a, kind of a an, an age of artists. Uh, and artisans that made beautiful things as well. So that was kind of, you know, to kind of show where things were as opposed to where things are, like how far they've fallen by the time you get to Star Wars. Um, yeah, we, it was kind of interesting because, you know, we all wanted to do an X-Wing or something. And it was like, nope, you got dragonfly wings and saxophones. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we'll do it. And um, so I worked on that. There was a Yoda had a kind of a, an egg escape pod on one of the right. planets. And uh, it had to open up and had, it almost looks kind of like uh, one of the Elon Musk kind of ships now. Or is it, or is it, no, it's, I think it's the Virgin Air rocket. Uh-huh. It's like an egg with all these like oblong holes in it. Uh-huh. And uh, I got to work on, to work, work on that and build that. Oh gosh, what else? There was, there was a number of things. It, it kept me busy for you know, probably about six months on that show. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was, I was glad I went back to Star Wars. Because despite the fact that I was working on AI, which was had the Kubrick uh, connection and and Minority Report, which was great because and it still gets referenced to this day yeah. um, about you know kind of future shock type in a future shock type way, and that was that was a cool one to have been on. But I I was aware that there was a Star Wars movie I was not working on the entire time I was on those, so it was cool to to come back and 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 work on the last one. Definitely. Well, I know now you are working at, I believe, 2K Games, doing modeling for them. What has that been kind of like working now in, in the video game area after all these years working in movies? I am a babe in the woods. I am learning a lot. What I'm finding, though, is that it's a lot like movie making. Um, you know, there's there's directors and scripts and sculptors and uh, actors and there's a lot of it's a lot of the same kind of stuff at least at the head of the gaming process uh, the development process so uh, we're you know probably a quarter into the the making of the game um, and so yeah I'm just I'm just kind of having fun learning just all the pieces of the puzzle that come together and make up the game so and I also get it's also kind of fun because I've I'm working on a basketball game and I like yeah. basketball. And I actually got to go to my first professional basketball game and and kind of watch from the, the, the seats that are right on the court. It kind of blew my mind. I, I didn't even think we should be allowed to be there. <laughs> I kept looking at going like, should, should we be yeah. here? Because the ball could come and can, can come and just knock us out or something. These guys are huge. And it was it was a lot of fun. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, something I plan to do for uh, – for a while now and uh kind of uh, get my get my feet wet and then really dive in i love it well um mr weed thank you so so much for these stories and your time uh, this has <laughs> been truly truly incredible so i appreciate it hey uh it's my pleasure all right thank you bye-bye Thank you again to Mr. Weed for running through some of the highlights of his incredible career. There was so much more we didn't even get to. And new for Season 2 is that we are officially releasing some merch. 
So check out the link in our show notes for the web store. Currently has some t-shirts, some pins, some stickers that you can rep at Celebration, you can rep around your house and beyond. So we are officially back. And next week's episode is a great interview with the original fan club president, Mr. Craig Miller. So until then, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.